I'm going to be reading from Matthew 24, beginning in verse 29. 24-29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Now learn the parable from the fig tree, when its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels or of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah." For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there shall be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. I'll pray. Lord, thank you for all that you have revealed, for the purpose, God, that we might see that you are in sovereign control and you have a plan and we can trust in you and not be taken by surprise by the events that happen before um, you come again. I pray that you would use your word, God, to comfort our hearts and to challenge and convict us, God, of being ready and awake um, in anticipation of your return. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I appreciate all the work the men are doing to um, spruce up the place, new coats of paint, and they got rid of the clock in the back of the room there. <laughs> so they want me to preach until the Spirit says stop, right? Or you go to sleep. Years ago, before we had this building, we were uh, meeting at the high school in the auditorium, and there was not a clock, as I recall, that I could, at least one that I could see, and my family usually sat right at the very front and center, and our oldest, Nathan, when he was five or six years old, um, he could tell time, and he knew when it was time to wrap it up, and his, his little arm would go up in the air, and he had his watch on, and he would start pointing at that watch. <laughs> Because every good preacher never looks at the front row. If you don't want to be seen, that's always the safest place to sit is on the front row. Well, everybody would be laughing, and, you know, and I'm going, why is everybody laughing? Because I don't even see the hand going up, and he's going, wrap it up, Dad. <laughs> he didn't say that, but that was the message. So if I see a hand go up and start pointing at your watch, you may think you're funny, but you're really not. <laughs> Well, this is, um, again, we're in the middle of the um, Olivet Discourse, Christ's last um, discourse. It's only to his disciples. It's not a public discourse. And he is telling them what's going to happen in the future. 
We don't like it when people tell us movies before we've seen them. And so sometimes people say, spoiler alert. Well, this is a spoiler alert. The Lord is telling us in advance what's going to happen. Now, that's actually important because um, we, we may not like it when people tell us in advance what a movie is going to be about, but we all like to have some warning of what's going to happen. Nobody really just likes to be surprised constantly. The occasional surprise is nice, especially when it's a happy surprise. But most of us, we would rather not be startled and shaken all the time because we, we gravitate toward the known, and, and the unknown unsettles us. And the Lord knows that. A lot of times the reason that small children are, are upset is because they just don't know what comes next. And if you just were to tell them as, you, as parents, this is what we're going to do, then they typically, not always, but often they settle down. We do that at camp. That's part of our staff training. Let your kids know what's going to happen. And so the night before, start telling them what's going to happen the next day. That morning, remind them of what's going to happen throughout the day. And it's amazing how it just settles things down and, and reduces the level of anxiety when we can know in advance. And that's what the Lord seems to be doing here. He's letting us know, His people in, adv in advance, of what's going to happen in the future. And the big picture to take away from this is He's in absolute control Nothing is catching him by surprise. And even though it's not all good news, the overarching good news is that he's in control. And it's all going to work out according to his program and his plan. And so in verse 29, he's, he's bringing it to the end of the great tribulation, that final week of judgment. We, I don't believe, as the church will be there. This, there's nothing about the rapture in these verses. There's nothing about the church in these verses. But nonetheless, for those that will be there, this would be important for them to have this so they can read and know what's going on. And for us who will be taken out in advance, there's going to be difficult times that happen before the tribulation ever comes. And so this helps us to know of what is approaching. So immediately after the tribulation, so that helps to set it in its time frame. The tribulation is done. Seven years of tribulation like the earth has never seen before. And he said that in verse 21, a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever shall. And so verse 29, it's over. Those seven years are finished. And then now that they're finished, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The earth is going to go dark. And that will be the last sign um, of the tribulation, and it is the beginning sign of his return, of his physical return to the earth. Everything is just going to go dark. There's only been one other time in human history where that has taken place, and that was at the crucifixion where the entire earth, for those three hours, they went dark. Could not be explained by an eclipse. It was darker than that, and that will be the case again. You will not see the sun. You will not see the moon. You will not see the stars. The entire planet is going to be blanketed in darkness. Pretty scary, you would think. And then, verse 30, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Well, what is that? Well, this is why 
One of the reasons that the Gospels have included the account of the Mount of Transfiguration, where Christ was revealed in his glory, and he shone like the sun. And so most commentators believe that the sign of the Son of Man is his glory, his Shekinah glory, that the earth, just as it went dark in a moment of time, and it is absolutely enveloped in darkness, Immediately prior to his return, the earth is going to be illumined, and it won't be by any natural source of light. It won't be by sun, moon, or stars. The only explanation is going to be this is the light of God. Now, God doesn't have to do it that way. He could have just, just, just in a moment, just crushed everything, and then here he is, but he doesn't. And so this sign is going to be in the sky the, the, for, for days, it would appear, that, he is, that the earth is going to be illumined by nothing other than the presence of Jesus Christ before he comes to earth and sets his feet on this planet. And so how long, we don't know, but it's not going to be just a brief thing, just one hour, one day, but it would seem that it's going to last for a while. Why? Because in judgment, God remembers mercy. And so this is what he's doing. He's giving one more opportunity for the people on this planet to place their faith in the one who is about to come. They can, they, all they've got to do, there's one more chance to turn to him. And yet we know from the account in Revelation that most people will not. It's astounding. But that's the, the condition of the heart that even though there's no possible explanation for what they're seeing in the sky, for the light of the world, that it is truly illumined the entire earth at the same time by light, that it has to be the presence of Jesus. Still, there will be many who will not believe. Now, we don't know how long it'll be. But here's just pure guess, conjecture on my part, so it's probably not worth much. But the last chapter of the book of Daniel, there's an interesting statement there. Chapter 12 of Daniel, it says, um, and the time of the reg- from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished, this is Daniel 12, 11, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. That's three and a half years. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. That's another 45 days. What is that 45 days? Well, some would say in that 45 days is when Jesus is is singling out sheep and goats, and he's judging each one of them. Well, that could be. That's a good explanation. But why would I have to... Why does it say, blessed is he who, who keeps waiting and attains? Because there's nothing... It's, it's all basically culminated. I'm just waiting for my place in line at that point. But this seems to have the tone of there's a need for another 45 days to keep enduring, to keep trusting. And so my thought is that 45 days between the 1,290 days and the 1,335 days is the length of time that the sign of the Son of Man is going to appear in the sky. So people have another 45 days to place their trust in him. And yet, many won't. 
And then, verse 31, he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, one end of the sky to the other. So after the sign of the Son of Man, which is the Shekinah glory, appears in the sky, then he will send forth his angels and gather all his elect. Specifically, in the context of the Olivet Discourse, he is talking about believing Jews. The Jewish people, in general, are God's elect nation. They're the only nation that is chosen by God. They are the elect people of God. Paul goes into this in great detail in the book of Romans. And so, but these in particular, not just Jews in general, but they are those Jews who have placed their faith in him because they are the true Jew, circumcised in heart and in flesh, as Paul explains again in Romans. And so the Lord is going to be gathering from all over the earth those people. Well, why are they all over the earth? Because Roman Revelation 12 tells us that the dragon, Satan, knowing that his time is very limited, he's going to spend his, the last three and a half years persecuting the Jewish people, so they're going to scatter and get out of Israel where they've all been gathered. They're going to scatter all over the world because Satan is trying to kill every last one of them. And why is he doing that? Because I've said so many times since when we started the Olivet Discourse, because of Jesus' prophecy that he will not come until Israel says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so Satan's trying to kill them in order to keep Jesus from coming back. They've scattered all over the earth, and now Jesus is bringing them back through the agency of angels. There's a great trumpet. Now, first of all, clearly Jesus is God. I don't know how anybody could question the deity of Jesus and read this passage. He is God. He has superiority over the angels. He has superiority over the sun, the moon, and the stars. That he is God and he is coming again. And then the great trumpet. Not to be confused with the trumpet of the rapture. Not to be confused with the seven trumpets of the book of Revelation. There are a variety of trumpets in the Bible. Gideon blew trumpets. Okay, there are lots of trumpets in the Bible. But this trumpet is after the tribulation. That means it is not the, tribula- it is not the trumpet of the rapture. It is not the seven trumpets of the book of Revelation. They occur, rapture trumpet, before the tribulation. Seven trumpets of Revelation, during the tribulation. But this very clearly says, after the tribulation. So this is an entirely different trumpet. Well, they're all, how can you say that? If it's a trumpet, then it means the trumpet of the rapture, which is the trumpets of the seven revelation, of, of the seven trumpets, and this is the last of the seven. Not every trumpet is the same. Lion, for example, occurs more than once in Scripture. It's not always a reference to Jesus. He is the Lion of Judah. But the enemy is also called a lion. Every time you see a horse in Scripture, it doesn't mean Jesus is riding on it. There are horsemen in the book of of Revelation. And there are other riders besides Jesus. So every horse is not a reference to Jesus riding it. Every lion is not a reference to Jesus. And every trumpet is not a reference to one event. There are, each trumpet signifies a different event. And this event is Christ is gathering together the elect, those believing Jews and any other believer who would be on the earth at this time. They're gathered together 
and then he's going to continue in his, in, um, in his judgment. That's going to come up more um, in chapter 25. So, any question that this is going to happen for us as believers? No question whatsoever. It is absolutely certain. How certain? He's going to get into that now in these next verses. He says, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So this is like when Jesus said in other places, you know, any sailor knows that if the sky is red at night, then that's going to be a good day the next day. If it's red in the morning, that's a bad day. So the little ditty we have, you know, sailor, red, uh, uh, red at night, sailor's delight, red in the morning, sailor's take warning. And Jesus talked about that. There's, so we understand the, the signs of, the, of, the, of nature, of the seasons. And he goes, if you can get the seasons, if you can anticipate, you know, you see the robins migrate down here at a certain time. They migrate out at a certain time. None of us are totally oblivious to the seasons. And neither should we be oblivious to what is happening in God's program for the future. Even so, verse 33 you too, when you see these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Keep in mind, he's not talking about the rapture. He's talking about his physical return to the earth to establish his kingdom and to crush all of his enemies. That did not, will not happen at the rapture. And he says, but he is, he is right at the door. So for those that believe that all prophecy was fulfilled in 70 A.D., with the destruction of Jerusalem, this is a bit of a problem because they have to say that Jesus has already come. Well, if he's already come, then we have to already be in his kingdom. That, so that's where amillennialism would come from, the view that we are currently in his kingdom, and it's not a literal physical kingdom, it is a spiritual kingdom. And if, his, and if he has already come, then Satan is bound at this present time. It doesn't appear to be for most of us. And so, but it seems to be the more natural way to take this is, is that there will be a physical, literal, visible return of Jesus. And once he comes, he will rule for a thousand years on this planet. So then he says, he's right at the door. When what? When you see these things. What things? Well, the key event according to the context of Matthew 24, will be the abomination of desolation. We are not going to see that. That is the Antichrist taking his place as God in the temple in Jerusalem. As Christians, as the body of Christ, we won't be here. But those that do see that should know they are living right on the cusp of Christ's physical return to the earth. Truly I say to you, this is important here in verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation, the generation that sees the things described in Matthew 24, this generation, not our generation, but the generation that sees these signs, so that'll be the generation of the tribulation, because that's the whole context. The tribulation generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away but my words shall not pass away. Now, one of the most difficult 
portions or literature types to deal with in Scripture is what we're dealing with here, prophecy, prophetic Scripture. It is a major portion of Scripture. It is full of symbolism and types. We get it. It's not easy to handle. But it doesn't make it any less certain or any less authoritative. When Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, anybody that's been paying attention to the ministry of Christ would remember the Sermon on the Mount when he said in Matthew chapter 5 that not the smallest letter or part of a letter shall pass away until it has all been fulfilled. And he was speaking of the word of God. And now Christ is equating what is true of the word of God with his own words. And so we have another indication that he is claiming to be God. Blows my mind that Jehovah's Witnesses would say that Jesus never made a claim to deity. It is all through scripture. So it is going to happen exactly as he said. The world may look like it's in chaos and everybody may be in a panic. But for us as believers, we should not be taken by surprise. We know with absolute certainty that the prophetic word will be fulfilled. Even though it's not clear, it's not easy to understand, it will be fulfilled and it will be fulfilled literally. I appreciate that more than one um, student of the Bible has observed that every prophecy of scripture that has been fulfilled has been fulfilled literally. Not a single prophecy was ever fulfilled spiritually or figuratively. All have been fulfilled literally. So when the Old Testament said that Jesus would be, would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, it happened literally. When it said that, that, he, would be cruci- that he would die, but not a single bone would be broken and his side would be, would be pierced, it happened literally. Every single prophecy of Scripture has been fulfilled literally. And there's no reason to take these prophecies as anything other than literal. Symbolism is being used, we get it, but the, but the prophecy itself that Christ is going to return, these events will take place before that return, are absolutely literal. This is not talking about figurative or spiritual things, but literal, visible, physical things that will take place on this planet. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son but the Father alone. It's always been a problem for folks because they say, well, then how can Jesus not know he's God? Well, Jesus is speaking here as a man. And as a man, he never ceased to be God. Never ceased to be God. But he did voluntarily choose not to exercise the attributes of deity unless it pleased his Father to do so. And so there are times when we saw in the Gospels, we see in the Gospels, the omniscience, the all-knowing God in Christ. There are things that he knew that only God could know. But there are other times when that was not the case. And so he would have had to learn to speak. He would have had to learn language. He would have had to learn the carpentry skills of his father. He would have been learning as anyone else learns. And so he never stopped being God, but he did um, um, set aside the exercise of some of the attributes of deity. Not the attributes were set aside, but the exercise of them. 
And at this point in time, as a man on earth, Jesus does not know exactly the day and hour that this will take place. The Father does. Does Jesus know now? I would say yes, because he's been restored to his glory, and so there's nothing that he doesn't know. There's nothing that God doesn't know. But the angels don't know, and uh, I don't know why I didn't tell them. Um, I have no idea. But, the, but God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit would certainly know exactly when Jesus is going to come again. But here's the interesting thing. Even if you were to know the exact day and hour, and we don't know. Again, the rapture, we certainly don't know because there are no signs that have to precede Christ taking his church out. And Paul certainly believed that it could happen at any moment. So did Peter. We see this very clearly from, from the writers of the New Testament. But the tribulation events are going to be full of signs, and we know it's only going to last seven years, so it would seem that they ought to know the day and hour. Because they know, just, you can just start your calendar. As soon as that seven-year covenant is made with Israel, it's going to be seven years. But there's apparently going to be a little bit of uncertainty about when it actually starts. And, from, I mean, historians would, would, would debate when did World War II actually begin. We have no doubt that it started. But when did it actually begin? Now, the termination date is a little clear. But that starting date, not always that clear with historical events. And it could be something like that here where, where you, it's hard for people just to pinpoint exactly when the seven years started. There certainly would have had some idea that they were getting close because it's a seven-year period. Just like the Magi had a very good idea of the approximate time that Jesus would be born. But they didn't know the exact time. But they had a very good idea of about how long it would be. And that's why they were looking and anticipating the coming of Christ. The amazing thing here, and this just shows, I think, I've really been thinking about this quite a bit, is, is that this shows how, how the capacity of the human heart for dullness, for apathy, lethargy, complacency. A lot of good words for just being dumb to what's going on around you. We have an amazing capacity for just being oblivious to what's happening around us. And think about it. One of the major characteristics of the tribulation is going to be an increase in selfishness. Remember Jesus said, lawlessness will increase and love will decrease. Well, love is selflessness. So if love is decreasing, then selfishness is increasing. And one of the typical, just, just basic attributes of selfishness is I am not aware of what's going on around me. All I'm thinking about is me. And I can just be oblivious to everything, the people around me, their needs, because I can't think beyond myself. That is human nature. And that is going to be amplified like the world has never seen in these last days. And so what they should have known, what they should have been able to see so plainly, most people will not 
because they're so consumed with themselves and their own lives. So he says, the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. You would think those people would have known the time that they're living in. Those people, couldn't they see how bad it is? And if there is a God, shouldn't, wouldn't, he, wouldn't you expect him to do something about this? There's only one righteous man on the planet, and all we do is make fun of him? That's the days of Noah. Noah spent a hundred years building that boat. He probably employed a lot of the community. And yet, people just carried on like there was no judgment coming. For as in, like in the days of Noah, for they were eating and they were drinking, they were marrying, they were giving in marriage, they were living life normally until the day that Noah entered the ark and it was too late. They did not understand until the flood came. I mean, they're drowning. Oh, now I get it. Too late. And took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. What an incredible capacity for ignorance and complacency. How many times have we heard people say, well, this is just the new normal. Why do we do that? It's just the new normal. I, you know, the new normal I haven't gotten used to in a lot of ways. When I go to the airport, you know, I'm, I, I have a very hard time being thankful for TSA. <laughs> Man, I even have these, this global entry thing, you know, where you, you get TSA pre-check, and it speeds you through the line. Most of the time, pretty good. Last time I traveled, again, I had a random check. What's the point? And I just, oh, man. And I, and I have this, this little Swiss Army knife that I carry all the time. And even, even TSA said, this exact knife ought to be approved. It can't hurt anybody, okay? Well, you could if you really tried, but who, you know. And so, but the flight attendant said, no, we don't want this knife approved. Unbelievable just irritates me. <laughs> it's the new normal. And if you didn't, you know, if, if you're not old enough to remember 9-11, where you could just, before that, you could just walk right up to the gate with your family members and hug them and say goodbye to them. You don't even know what the old normal was. And we just, we have this amazing capacity just to let things change and just to adapt to them because we so long for routine. We hate uncertainty, and we'd rather live with a new normal and have that have some semblance of certainty and routine than to have things go back to where they were. Lockdowns, surveillance, and we say, well, that's all behind us. Really? I don't think so. And think, man, how can we have gone through everything we did in the last couple of years with COVID and how the government's overreach through all that, and not be aware of where this is all heading. And, I'm, and again, do not ever hear me as saying I don't think COVID is a valid thing. I almost died from COVID last year. And so I know it is a valid thing. But the way that we have responded to it, what the things we've let our government do, this is all setting the stage for what Christ is revealing here. And we can just be complacent, lethargic, 
and ignorant in the midst of it. Not God's people. That's what Jesus is saying here. Not my people. Should, they should be aware of what's going on. Again, I'm talking generally here. I'm lumping together the church at this time and the believers during the time of the tribulation who come to faith in Christ after the rapture takes place. But it will be a time of amazing complacency and apathy. So I, I've been said, I've been thinking about complacency and apathy quite a bit. Part of it because um, I think about retiring all the time. And then what am I going to do with all that free time? You know, do I want to take up golf? No, makes me cuss when I play golf. And I don't want to. <laughs> they say that's why it's called golf, because all the other four-letter words were taken. Um, People ask me, you know, I mean, again, there's just, the thing is, you don't see, I mean, when you see complacency in Scripture, it always has a bad result. And there are so many warnings against it. Why did David get caught up with Bathsheba? Because of complacency. He was supposed to be out with his army fighting. But he was just back taking an early retirement. And we know what happened from that just complacent, lethargic, apathetic, not on guard. And the thing that I have to be on guard for most, all of us, is ourselves. Because we have no greater enemy. And the day we start stop being vigilant and on our guard about ourselves, the battle's lost. There is a constant enemy in us. Paul says in Romans 7, there is evil in me. This is why Oswald Chambers, appreciate him so much, one of his quotes, he says, there is, no in a, there is no criminal who is half so bad in actuality as what we are capable of in potentiality. And then he follows up and says, but all we need to do in order to not experience the terrible possibilities that lie within our hearts is to hand ourselves over to Jesus daily. We must do that, to be vigilant, to be scared. I've been just thinking so much lately about Psalm 69, 6, where David says, may those who wait for you not be ashamed through me. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me. And I'm just going, God, the last thing I want after 65 years is to have those who wait for you and for those who seek you to be ashamed or dishonored through me. There is, needs to be a healthy fear of self, to be terrified of what we are capable of, and understand that when we begin to just cruise, then we are in danger mode. I know a friend that during a winter ice storm, driving down from Pennsylvania, he put his car on cruise control. What? A foolish, foolish decision. They totaled the car. And, you know, hit a patch of ice, car was out of control, he had to tap the brakes. That doesn't do a good thing when you're in a slide. And so totaled the car. There's no place for cruising in the Christian life. No place for complacency. We have a devil that is seeking whom he may devour. And it's really easy to get to those who are asleep. So Paul's going to say very strongly in talking to the church 
again, he understands that we, you know, and here's the thing. Complacency is not because, it's not doctrine that, that breeds complacency. Now, complacency can feed off the doctrine. And so a lot of people I've heard say over the years, they don't like the doctrine of the rapture of the church because it breeds complacency. And, you know, I can say, well, I don't like the doctrine of election because that can breed complacency. But it's not the doctrine that's the problem. It's the complacency is just is feeding off the doctrine. But there's a basic inclination in each of us just to cruise and not to continue to seek after God. I think about the promises where, for example, Paul says in Philippians 1 that he who began a good work in you will, will finish it. He will bring it to completion. Praise God. Well, then just cruise. Just put it on autopilot, right? Because he's going to finish the work that he began. But then Paul says in Philippians 3, I strive, I press on, I reach forward. There was no complacency with him. We see the same thing with John in the first epistle. John says that, the, that when we see him, we shall be like him. Well, then good, put it on autopilot. When I see him, I'm going to be like him. But then he says in the next verse, but the one who has this hope fixed on himself fixed on Christ, purifies himself even as he is pure. And so that truth that I will be like him when I see him ought to inspire me to fix, Christ, fix my hope on Christ and to have and to live a pure life. The truth of God's word dispels complacency if we respond in faith to it. So Paul wrote, writes to the Romans in chapter 13, and he essentially says, wake up, get dressed, and put on Jesus. He says, and do this knowing the time is already that the hour for you to awaken from the sleep has already come. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus. What is the biggest antidote? To complacency, Jesus' very life. Because if there is one thing that is not ever going to be true of Jesus, it is complacency, lethargy, apathy. His life is a renewing life. Every moment of Christ's life is a new life. There's not any, any scintilla of boredom in Christ's nature. And so Paul will also write to the Romans and he says, we have been crucified with him, buried with him, and raised to the newness of his life that we might walk in the newness of life. He'll write to the Thessalonians the same warnings about not being asleep, but to wake up and to be prepared. And this is a man who preached the rapture. And it did not inspire complacency in Paul. It motivated him, knowing this could be the day when Jesus comes again. I appreciate teaching these things to kids because, man, they get it more readily than we do. They haven't lived a lot of days yet. They don't have lots of years of, man, I wish that had never happened behind them. All they've got is a life in front of them and a very little 
to, to, to work off of. And man, you tell a kid about this is the day that Jesus will come and he's going to return on the clouds in the same way that he came. And guess what they start doing? Looking at the clouds. And they'll ask mom and dad, do you think it'll be those clouds? And mom and dad are going, what are you talking about? Because they've forgotten what they've been telling their kids. What clouds? You know, dad, the clouds that Jesus are going to come back on. Yeah, son, that could be the ones. Now, again, that's talking about tribulation events, we understand. But the expectation, expectation that's in the child's heart, it was in Paul's, John's, Peter's. And they believed in the soon imminent return of Christ and how much more we should do the same. It says, as in the days of Noah, when the flood came and took them all away, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And then in verse 40, then there shall be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Not the rapture. Those that were taken during the flood were taken into judgment. Now, it is a different word for taken in verse 39 and taken in verse 40. But it doesn't mean that verse 39 is about the unbeliever being taken and verse 40 is about the believer being taken. Different word, but not a different concept because verse 40 and 41 are being likened to the flood. And what happened in the flood, it was the unbelievers who were taken away into judgment. And it was the believers that were safe in the ark. Now, here's the thing. I don't think, other than the preterist who thinks everything was fulfilled in 70 AD, and that's a very minor perspective, most people believe that these events are the tribulation events and Jesus is now talking about the very end of the tribulation. Whether you're pre-trib, post-trib, that's what most people would accept. We're consistent in our views that this is the end of the tribulation. The post-trib people say that the rapture comes at the end of the tribulation. I don't believe it, but I understand where they're coming from. Here's one major problem with that. If the rapture takes place at the end of the tribulation, then all Christians on earth are gone. They go to be with the Lord in heaven. And all the unbelievers who are left, they go immediately into judgment before the Lord. Everybody agrees with that, okay? So here's the question. Where do the people who populate the millennium come from? Major problem. All the unbelievers went into judgment. All the believers went up into the sky to be with the Lord. Who's left to populate the millennium? Major problem. And so they have different ways of working around that. Some of them say, well, the 144,000 Jews were not saved until after Christ returns. And then, though, and they, and then they get saved after all these events. There's no, there's no evidence in Scripture that that's true. We know that those who go into the millennium have to be believers because the scripture is very clear that only believers can enter into his kingdom. 
Everyone else will be in the outer darkness, but his believers will be in the kingdom with him. And we know that they have to be in their natural bodies. Now, we will be, those who have been raptured with the Lord, will come back with him in glorified bodies. But there have to be people in the millennium who were not raptured. Christians, people who are saved, who are in their natural bodies. Why? Because at the end of the millennium, there's going to be a bunch of people rebelling. And so where did they come from? The children of those who lived through the tribulation were saved, and there's no, they can't be raptured because the rapture's taken place. And they're saved, and so they're taken straight into his kingdom. They populate his kingdom. They're the ones having babies. And even during the millennium, when Jesus is on earth, we in our glorified bodies will be on earth. There will still be people rebelling against Jesus. Should give some hope to parents who have their kids go astray. Because you think, what are the odds of a kid going astray during the millennium? But it's going to happen. We are not in absolute control of, of the faith decisions. We have no control over the faith decisions of our children. So the ones that will be taken are taken away into judgment, and the ones that are left are taken into his kingdom. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know the day or the hour, the day that your Lord is coming, and then later he'll bring it back to the hour. Now, I did look at my watch. Some of you may have wondered, and you're being very good not to raise your hands up. Thank you. So let me just wrap it up with this. And we're going to end on time. This, to me, is the summary of what he's been saying so far um, up to this point. He's going to have a series of, of parables for the rest of chapter 24 and 25, and we'll start getting into that. We'll cover a lot of it next time. But here's the basic summary of this program at this point. Number one, God has a program. He knows what he's doing. It's going to be accomplished. Absolutely. We may be disturbed. God is not. He knows exactly what he's going to do. Prophecy in the Bible is literal. And it is just as certain as any other part of the Bible. It is not less certain. It is just as certain. That doesn't mean I understand it all. None of, none of us will. But it is just as certain, just as literal as anything else in the Bible. Clearly, from this passage of Scripture, Jesus is God. And all humanity is going to have to reckon with him one way or another. If we get nothing else out of this passage, Jesus is God. He is coming again. And all humanity will have to deal with him. I pray that you have. The Bible's clear that if you have received Jesus, if you've accepted the free gift of eternal life that he offers to you, then you will not experience the judgment of God you will not experience the wrath of God. Clear on that. Otherwise, you will have to deal with him. Complacency is a perpetual problem and tendency in the human heart. 
we have been blessed as Christians with every blessing in the heavenly places. God is for us. Who can be against us? Nothing is going to separate us from the love of God. Wonderful truths. But we should be the last people to be dull and lethargic in the days that we're living in. We should have our eyes open. We should understand that we are in the middle of a battle. And that enemy is, is seeking someone he can devour. And that could be us. Because we don't trust him. We're not desperately in need of him for our own potential, for what we are capable of. We turn against each other. We're full of anger and strife and bitterness, unforgiveness. And at the root of it, much of it is the pride of thinking, because I'm a Christian, I'm forgiven. Oh, my Lord, have mercy on us. I am forgiven, but there is no room for pride. And the fact that Jesus is coming again and we will soon be with him ought to move us all to walk humbly that we might be prepared for his soon return. Each generation. This Matthew 24 is written about the tribulation generation. But each generation must be ready and alert. Those are some of the lessons from this chapter of Scripture. I'll pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for including these things for our profit, though by your grace, God, we will not have to see them. But I pray that we would be alert and ready for the soon return of Jesus in the air for those who are his, to be raptured, God, to be with you. That we would be fearful of our own potential. And we would turn to you, O oh God, each moment of every day in that dependence upon you to live your life, the newness of your life through us, and that we might be safeguarded in doing so from the terrible possibilities that lie within each of our hearts. Find us ready, O oh Lord, we pray for your return. In Christ's name, amen.